So today we wrap up our sermon series, uh, which was called Foundations, Great Themes of the Bible, Great Pieces of Doctrine. And as you know, if it's your first week here, maybe you've only been here a couple of weeks with us, there's so much that we can do in each one of these topics. There's no way we can do it on a Sunday morning. And so what you can do is you can go later, once we upload this sermon, later in this week, you can go uh, to our website and you can download this, not only the sermon, you can listen to the sermon also on a podcast, but you can also download supplemental material as well. And it's especially applicable today as we talk about the future or the end times, okay? There's no way, there's so much you can not only wade in, but you can drown in in this topic as well. So I want to especially encourage you again to go this week and take a look at the supplemental material that we'll be getting up later in the week uh, dealing with this as well. But when we talk about the end times, you'll also hear me use the word eschatology. In fact, I try not to use really big words in here on Sunday morning purposefully, but there's sometimes where big words really help because it just kind of cuts to the heart of the matter. So there's a few we're going to use today, and I'm going to really try to do my best without trying to fully go into professor mode with explaining some of those to you. So one word that we're, you're going to hear me talk about a lot today is eschatology. Now, this comes from the word eschatos, which is a Greek word which means uh, last things or in things. So you can see the study of eschatology is a study of the in things or the future to come. Now, here's the main message of the Bible, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today because we're not going to get down in the, in, in the depths of this topic today because there's no way you could do a, a full sermon series. Maybe we'll do that one day on this topic alone. So I'll refer you to the material, but the big thing that you want to walk away from Scripture, the big theme in eschatology in Scripture or study of the end times in Scripture is to be prepared. Christ is returning, no matter how uh, one particular Bible scholar or another or student of the Bible or another or a Christian or another might, uh, what, the, what they believe the Bible talks about specifically related to specific passages, the overarching uh, the overarching push of Scripture when it talks about eschatology in the end times is that Christ is returning, he's coming again, and so you must be prepared. And so that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. So starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 25, we, uh, we see this parable here. Jesus is telling this parable. And he says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Or this could be young women of marrying age, which is probably the better translation. Some of your Bibles might have something similar to that. We'll get back into that in just a moment. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. So even amounts, five wise, five foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels, their lamps, their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and they slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered saying, no, we can't do that lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Yes, this was a late time of night, but it could have very well been the practice of the day uh, that, that shops might be open for special occasions that would consume an entire village. Whether that be the case or not, one of the great principles in parables is that you don't make it walk on all fours. That's sort of a colloquial statement, which basically means it's a parable that Jesus is using as illustration. You don't have to have every little bit of it mean something. 
But with that said, if, if Jesus was obviously telling this fictitious story, it very well could have made sense to the people, the original hearers, that yeah, the shopkeepers would have been open for such a monumental occasion, even at a late, uh, a late hour in the day. Either way, it says here in verse 11, as it gets to the heart of the passage, afterwards, the others came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. So they went out. They didn't have their oil. The, the ones that were prepared said, no, lest we don't both have enough and all of our lamps go out. But maybe you can go into town. Maybe you can find a shop open and maybe you can find a little oil. So they did that. They're scrambling around. They come back and it says, Lord, and they say to them, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and he said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, again, as we get to the heart of the message, Jesus is saying, again, he's using this parable as illustration of the fact that he will return. He says, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is the whole theme of all of eschatology, all of the teaching of the end times in Scripture, is that we must be prepared. Christ will return. We don't know the hour, no matter what sort of kook we might see on TV that's written a book or whatever, right there from the words of Jesus Christ, echoed throughout scriptures, we don't know the time, the hour, so you must be prepared. And we're going to talk about what does preparation mean, not only for the believer, the one who has given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore the Christian, as we know, as we've talked about many times before, a Christian is not a person who just attends church. A Christian is not someone who just lives in America and doesn't claim another religion, so by default, they're a Christian. A Christian is a little Christ, one who has come to a place personally, no one else can do that for you, one who has come to a place personally, whereas Jesus himself said, you were born again, and it happens by surrendering one's life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you must repent, turn from your old way of life, and believe, believe in him as your Savior and your Lord, the only one who can forgive you of sin. So whether you're a Christian here today... It means diligence, it means diligence, or whether you're an unbeliever, one who has not yet given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he also calls you to be prepared, and we know that preparation is first and foremost by surrendering your life unto him. And so as we walk through this passage today, again, we see this great overarching theme of preparation. Now, we know that many people in here have done home improvement projects. And in fact, last week I talked about one of our favorite home improvement shows on TV, which is Renovation Realities. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that one. It's, it's great. They're renovating either for personal space or a lot of times they're renovating to flip a home. And it's, it's people that are, that are newbies. They're people that are not very experienced in, in home renovation. Of course, that's the premise of the show. and That's what makes it really funny. So there's one end of the scale in which there's the, the homes that are, 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 are renovated by people that really know what they're doing. And then there's this end of the, the programming scale where it's the ones that don't know what they're doing. And it is really, really funny. It's great some of the things they get themselves into. But I really kind of commiserate with some of these people that are doing these renovations, especially in the area of preparation. We know the biggest difference, there's two huge differences between the professional that does renovation or building or construction, and then, of course, the, the person who's just your weekender, your, your one that's just kind of duffing along and doing the, the, the best they can. Of course, it's years and years of skill. That's the number one thing, years and years of skill and training, but also the preparation of having the right tools. Am I right? Who has ever tried to do a job with a tool that does not work for the particular particular job. 
And you do this debate, you go back and forth with yourself, you say, okay, do I stop my progress here and go to the hardware store, buy a tool that I know I will not use again in 30 years? That's exactly right. And then, and, and I know I don't have a friend that has one of them. And I've told you before about my rule. It's like once I borrow it three times and I think, okay, I need to go buy one. I can be you know, pretty assured that I'm going to use it again. But knowing as soon as I go buy it, even if I've already borrowed it three times, three different occasions, as soon as I go buy it, I'll never have that project again in my house, ever. But the two biggest things, of course, above and beyond, it's they have the skill and the years of training Though there are many of those, those men and women, they are true artists. They aren't just construction, a great construction, great at renovation, but they are true artists at what they do. But they're also really good because they're prepared with the right tools. And so that's exactly what we're talking about today. Again, preparation, preparation. Jesus says, I am coming again. You must be prepared. And so again, starting in verse one, as we walk through it, He says, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Again, this is a parable. It's a story. It's an illustration. Probably better translated there, uh, young women of marrying age. Really, when you kind of put it in the cultural context, these are probably what, what we would say akin to bridesmaids, but very young bridesmaids. And so what was their motivation of really feeling like as we go further into the story, they were really being left out? What was the big oh no moment? I don't know if it was the fact that this was their sort of, I don't know, debutante moment where uh, they were kind of, uh, they were out there also as eligible bachelorettes. Was it just the fact that they were really letting down their friend, the bride? Was it the cultural stigma of missing such a monumentous event in the village? Whatever it may be, you can kind of fill in the blank. But there was a big oh no moment when they realized, five of them, of course, that we are not prepared. So it says, now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Now, here's the the, the interesting thing about it. There is no difference between the wise and the foolish in this context except for their preparation or their lack thereof. And really, when we look in the book of Proverbs, when it speaks of foolishness, as we talked about before, the book of Proverbs, which is the book of God's wisdom, wonderful, wonderful Uh, just verse after verse of so many wise things that not only apply to the spiritual world, but of course, as we know, there's two things are integrated, the everyday practical world. Even if an unbeliever, someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit within them, isn't a, a believer in Jesus Christ, even if they could somehow apply all of the teachings of Proverbs perfectly in life, which we know they couldn't, even if they could do that, they would see that the truth of God's word rings absolutely true for each and every day, no matter where someone finds himself in any slice of culture. But the book of Proverbs is chocked full of this wisdom, and it talks about the wise and the fool. Now, the fool in the book of Proverbs isn't just a person who's ignorant. They're not a person who just kind of walks around, you know, with just without a clue. The fool in the book of Proverbs is not ignorance, but it's willful rejection of the very truth of God. That's the fool. The one who knows what to do is right, but doesn't do it. They willfully reject the very truth of God. And so we see that, that, the, that these foolish ones, they knew what was right. They knew what they should, be, should do. They were exposed to the truth. As again, we take the parable to illustrate our lives. We're exposed to the truth of God's word, but are we going to reject it? Are we going to take it to heart? And are we going to follow it? And so we see here the consequences as well. It said they took no oil. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. 
But then while the bridegroom is delayed, they all slumbered and they slept. The bridegroom delayed. There is no promise. Again, we know that here in the parable, this speaks of Jesus Christ. There is no certainty. He has never given us a time or date. We see, of course, later in the, 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 the passage itself, he says, in fact, the exact opposite. You will not know when I'm returning. But here is what's certain. He will return and he will reign upon his throne. Will we be prepared? So it says again, there's no difference between the wise and the foolish except for their lack of preparation, their willful rejection of what they knew to do was right. And again, they saw the consequences of it. You see, consequences are a result of early foolishness. When we speak, and I speak of early, meaning not early in an actual time frame of one hour, although it can have that sort of condensed, uh, condensed sort of nature to it, but if we are unwilling in our lives um, in, in sort of a proactive way, to, if, if we're unwilling to follow the truth of God's word in a proactive way, then we will be reactive with consequences. We will reap the consequences of life. Again, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 13 says, the way of the sinner is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. God is a loving, gracious God. And he doesn't give us these directives for life just so he can kind of keep us on a string and he can kind of put us under his thumb. He knows we live in a sin-ravaged world. And so these directives that he gives us is for our good and his honor. And he says the way of the sinner is hard. And I think we all know that. We all know that. We've, we've realized the hardship in our own lives when we've sinned and we walked away from the directives of God. We also know people in our lives, those that are very close to us, friends and loved ones who have lived out this principle the entirety of their lives, and your heart is broken for how hard their life is. Proverbs 1, verses 30 through 31, and again in 33, says this very thing. They, whatever God is speaking just kind of generally to the people of the earth, they would have none of my counsel. And in fact, he says, and they, des they despise my very rebuke. Remember, rebuke in Scripture isn't this sort of God, again, trying to throw a lightning bolt and shoot us with lightning or kind of hammer us into the ground. A rebuke is a kind correction from a loving father. He says in verse 31, therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way. They shall eat the fruit of their own way. God will say, God will try to bring gentle correction into our life and he'll guide us to truth in his word. But if we refuse and we say, I'm going after my own, then eventually we eat the fruit of our own way. And he says in verse 33, whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil, without fear of evil. And so here we, we see as this sort of setup in verses one through five, we see kind of the background to this story. And then we have two points here that kind of really lay out very well the second half of this story. The very first one is very simply what we see, the very title of the message is be prepared. Be prepared. And it says in verse 6, and at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And again, we know this is illustrative of Jesus Christ and his second coming. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So again, this is illustrative of the people of the earth. Are we going to be prepared for the coming of Christ or are we not? And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, no, lest we not have enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell, go into the market and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and those who were left, the door 
was shut. So as we kind of walk through this little section here, there's a couple of phrases and words that really stick out. One, at midnight, diligence is required. It says, at midnight, diligence is required. Jesus Christ never promised us the day or the hour we must be diligent in our lives. This is one of the hardest things, in fact, for for mankind. Delayed gratification, isn't it? It's one of the hardest things, and we really never grow out of it. As we get older and we become more mature, we get a little bit better about having delayed gratification, meaning I am working for something now that's going to pay off in the future. But it's still one of the hardest things because we want immediate gratification. That's why even in settings like this, even the settings in a church, a self-help sermon will always ring the bell more than a treasure displacement, laying up treasure in heaven. One of those will always ring the bell more. Now, does that mean that God doesn't want us to look towards his his word for things that can help us in our daily lives? Absolutely. But he tells us that very principle earlier in the book of Matthew that if we're laying up our treasure in heaven, then these things of earth, as that great song says, will grow strangely dim. He'll take care of those things. If we lay up treasure in in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, he will take care of our life. So we must be prepared at midnight. At midnight, a cry was heard. This is a great echo of all those great passages of the return of Christ. One of those being 1 Thessalonians 4.16 in the midst of that great passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That great glorious descending of Jesus Christ from heaven. At midnight, a cry was heard, and behold, it says, the bridegroom is coming. Go out. So someone, a messenger says, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So when we break down these things specifically about this, of the coming of Christ, we know that, again, the bridegroom is coming is illustrative of the second coming of Christ. Here for a minute is where I'm going to put on the professor hat, okay? And I don't want us our eyes to kind of roll back in our head. I'm going to kind of walk through a couple of things. And again, go to the website this week. We'll post some of the supplemental material because there is no way we can walk through this in great detail. But I want to walk through three of the basic uh, divisions, delineations of how people see eschatology. Remember, end times based upon three things. One of those, a lot of them in the definition center around what's called the millennium, Revelation chapter 20. One of those is amillennialism. Ah meaning uh, no, meaning there's no future millennium. We'll walk through these in just a, just a moment. Historical premillennialism, and then pre-tribulation, I know we've got big words here, or dispensational millennialism, okay? So hang with me just a few moments. We're going to walk through this, and again, we'll have the supplemental material online. But here's one thing I want to put online. I want to put a great quote here from a guy named Hank Hanegraaff. Some of you have um, heard of him. He's the Bible answer man. Some of you might listen to him on the radio. And this is a great quote when it comes to all things, uh, when, we, when we talk about some of the things that the Bible teaches. He says, in essentials, unity, which means when we're talking about the virgin birth of Christ, when we're talking about the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ was God on earth, when we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, that there is no other way under heaven in which men might be saved except by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the essentials of the faith. And in those, we have unity. He says, in non-essentials, liberty, meaning there's many things like eschatology where you see uh, many good, conservative, Bible-believing people that argue from Scripture for their different views on the end times. So there is no one way that you can say, oh, well, Well, mine is the biblical way. 
I argue from it from the Bible. Well, if you look into it, you dig into it, and we'll show you online, you will see all of the proponents, major proponents of these different views argue from Scripture for their particular view on the end times. So in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, meaning that we realize under the umbrella of Christendom and under the umbrella of Bible-believing Christians, those that believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, you're going to have still some areas of Scripture in which people find different teachings from Scripture on different topics. And that's one of these, in fact, that we see in Foundations, great themes of the Bible. So let's walk through some of these. Stick with me here. Again, we'll have more of this online for you to take a look at. The very first one, there's in fact three, is amillennialism. I think we've got the whole thing in there. I'm going to put that up, have you take a look at that while I talk about one more, which is a fourth one. There was one called postmillennialism, which you see hardly any of that this day and age, which was basically a belief that during the church age, the world is going to get better and more peaceful and, and become more righteous because of the effect of the church on the earth before, and that will happen after the millennium, where the millennium is the church age, but the world is going to become more peaceful and righteous. Well, here's the thing. The popularity of that one was pretty much done away with with a little thing called World War I that happened. So, and then, of course, World War II kind of nailed that one as well. You still do see some people that argue for that. Um, but I'm going to talk about three of these today. One is amillennialism, which means the basics of that is they don't believe that there is a literal millennium that's going to happen later. They believe that we are in the millennium right now. There is, it's not a literal 1,000 years, but it's a symbolic long age of time, which speaks to the present age, the church age. And they see a lot of the book of Revelation as not only having uh, symbolism for our day and truth for our day and a prophetic uh, teaching for our day and for the future, but also for the first century believers uh, there in Rome as well. And so they teach that we're in the millennium now, uh, and then, of course, Christ will return, and then we will experience the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new earth. They believe that. Those are some of the basics, symbolic 1,000 years. The next one is a historical premillennialism. It's a little more complicated. Don't get kind of hooked by all the boxes there. But one of the big differences here is that uh, historical premillennialists believe that there is a literal 1,000 years uh, that will happen. And the big difference is they believe that the church will uh, exist through the tribulation and that they will be raptured uh, at the coming of Christ before the millennium. That's one of the big differences. And of course, <clears throat> along with amillennialism, believes too that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. Then there's also dispensational premillennialism. Some call it a pre-tribulational <laughs> premillennialism. I know, kind of how's that for a tongue twister? But this is one that you would probably say amongst um, amongst Southern Baptists is probably still the most popular view of the end times. The biggest difference between this and historical uh, premillennialism would be that uh, the church, they believe the church is raptured before the tribulation, and then Christ will return again with the church after the tribulation, then the millennium, then the millennium, then the eternal state. So those are some of the basics. Again, we'll break this down for you and, and, and give you some more good, really good resources. So why, in fact, is, is one categorized as historical as opposed to one that's categorized as dispensational? Well, historical premillennialism is, is called that or classical 
Because for the most part, you can see with Bible-believing, strong evangelical believers throughout the 2,000 years of church history, this has been the predominant view. It's not until dispensational uh, premillennialism that kind of came into fashion in the 1830s was, was this one sort of dethroned, if you will, or sort of became the less popular uh, dispensationalism becoming the more popular against some circles of, of evangelicalism. So dispensationalism rose in popularity during the 1830s which, with a man known as Darby, John Nelson Darby. And, uh, and it wasn't, and there's some, you can see some evidence in a couple of chapter, a couple of centuries before that you see some evidence of it. But basically this one originated in the 1830s with John Nelson Darby. How did it become so popularized, especially in America? Well, one of the reasons is, is a thing called the Schofield Reference Bible. Who remembers the Schofield Reference Bible? So you remember the great reference Bible. And in fact, you know, what's different then as opposed to today, especially in Southern Baptist life, is that if you walk into a, a, a bookstore today, a Christian bookstore, you almost can't walk without tripping over a study Bible, right? There's so many study Bibles. There's so many great study Bibles. But back then, that was really the leading, that was definitely the distinctive study Bible. And so it was adopted by Schofield, that, that uh, dispensationalism was adopted by the Schofield Reference Bible. And of course, Darby himself uh, had influence upon Schofield, who had uh, influence upon a great theologian called Lewis Berry Schaefer. Uh, this found its way into some of the great Christian institutions as well, Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, and Biola University, uh, as well as a great deal of evangelicalism. And so we know that this is, uh, this is one of the ways that we see it growing in great popularity. Now, does it mean because it's relatively new, it cannot be uh, the correct way to interpret eschatology? Absolutely not. It absolutely could be the correct way to interpret eschatology. However, we know, of course, the burden of proof relies upon those or lies upon those that, that are kind of coming to the party later in the game. Can it absolutely be the correct way to interpret Scripture and eschatology? Absolutely. Uh, but we do have to know it is uh, rose in prominence only in the last couple of centuries of Christian history. So the question is, I know some of you are thinking out there, so pastor, which one do you ad- adhere to? So you know, again, you know, I think just the, the very thing that, that we saw here from Hank Hanegraaff uh, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials, uh, 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 well, I already forgot it, but in all things charity, and so I have to say, and I, I, I never, whenever I'm talking and somebody asks me about this, I never want to seem like a cop-out that I have a hard time kind of falling in one particular area. But I think it is very true what uh, Wayne Grudem says. Wayne Grudem is, is one of our leading uh, theologians today. He's one of our great uh, evangelical theologians. You've, in fact, seen me quote him quite a bit during the study of Foundation Sermon Series. And on one of his recent podcasts, as, uh, as he's walking through, kind of in a setting much like this, he's walking through some of these things, actually in a classroom setting. And as he's walking through some of these teachings, he's saying, now you will notice when we talk about the deity of Christ, when we talk about um, the exclusivity of Christ, when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, I am absolutely definitive on those things. But he says, I have more humility when it comes to this because of the nature of it, that this is not one of the essentials of Scripture, and that there are many uh, Bible-believing conservative Christians that believe in the errancy of God that come and they see eschatology in different ways. And so he said, you need to be very wary of anyone that says definitively, this is the way to interpret Scripture when it comes to eschatology. 
And so I always hate to, to say I don't want to have a cop-out on this and to say with humility that, uh, that I can see points in each and every one of these, but that's really where I fall. Now, if I had to pick one, I would say if someone said, which way do you lean? I think when I search scripture and, and study scripture, I think I would have to say that I would lean more towards the historical premillennialism. Now, if you remember, that's the one where one of the big points of that is when I search scripture, I wonder and I look at it and I see places like Matthew chapter 24 and other places, I wonder, and if I had to pick a tiebreaker, I would pick historical premillennialism. Now, with that said, I I am just like Wayne Grudeman say, this is one of the areas in which I'm not definitive. When I look at um, many of the books that you can read by different authors and scholars that are, again, conservative Uh, Bible-believing theologians that teach the inerrancy of Scripture, you can see good points that each and every one of these systems make. And so I don't think it's a cop-out at all to say that I have enough humility to say, if I was pinned down, I might lean this way. But I, you know, you, you look at the passage and you say, they've got a good point about this passage. This group's got a good point about this passage. This point's got a good point about this passage. And I really think God and all of his wisdom helps us to see that there are areas in Scripture that are absolutely definitive. There are those that are essentials. And then in other areas of Scripture, we need to have unity and humility, realizing that this isn't something that divides fellowship, but this is a unifying uh, point of believers where we have, uh, where we have these non-essentials. We have this liberty and charity. And in all things, we must have the unity over these, uh, over these teachings. So I'd say of all of those things, uh, I think that is a good place to be. And I don't at all feel like it's a cop-out to say that I can see the arguments from each and every one of these sides from Scripture, and I think some of these things are good, but if I had to be pinned down, I think I'd probably lean towards the historical premillennial side, knowing, again, one of the great arguments is that it's been the, it has been the majority view of the church for the great history of the church 2,000 years of the church itself. So taking the professor hat off, we'll give you some more supplemental material online, give you some great places to look and take that. But as we then get kind of take that aside and and come back to the scripture, let's look again at the future being prepared. Again, we see those wise virgins say, give us some of your oil. These young women, give us some of your oil. You see, preparation cannot be transferred to another person. Preparation can't be transferred to another person. If you're here today and you have never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have never come to that place in life where you have personally surrendered unto him. And as he says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 15, repent, turn from your old way of life, and believe in him. If you've never done that, I want to break it to you. I want to break what might be the difficult, but the very important news that you need is that your mom and dad cannot make you a Christian. Your grandmother, your faithful grandmother that went to church for years and years and prayed for you cannot make you a Christian. Their prayers can have absolute great effect in your life, but it comes down to you personally surrendering surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your, your Lord. Preparation cannot be transferred to another. And also says in verse 10, and while they went to buy... While they went to buy, they missed the bridegroom coming because they were focused on the temporal. Their poor preparation then focused them on the temporal instead of being proactive in their life. Instead of when we break it down to a very practical level, getting up each and every day of your life, carving out the first part of your day for the Lord. 
carving out the first part of your day for the Lord and saying, Lord, this time is yours. This time is yours. Poor preparation caused them to be focused on the temporal. They were just drinking from the fire hydrant of life as that might relate to us. I love this old quote that many of us have heard many times before. Poor planning on my part or poor planning on your part does not necessitate an emergency on mine. You've heard that before, right? Poor planning on your part does not necessitate an emergency on mine. You'd almost hear that from from these others, these wise young ladies that uh, prepared their lamps as they should. You see, when we focus so much, you've heard the old saying, someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. The only problem with that is it's not biblical, right? Little, Little problem, little problem. Because the Bible tells us, in fact, God's teaching tells us, If we have our minds set on things above, God takes care of all the other things. When we are heavenly minded, when we are focused on the eternal, God takes care of the temporal. And guess what? We have all the wisdom that we need for interacting with the temporal. And not only that, God takes care of it all. So when we think about this section of be prepared, put this on the screen here. I want you to take a look at this. This is a need for decision and diligence for the unbeliever. One must make the decision to follow Christ. For the believer, one must be diligent in daily surrender to Jesus Christ. So this teaching here, we know it almost has these two application points. One for the person that is definitely not prepared to meet Jesus Christ because they've never surrendered their life to him. And if he were to return, they'd find themselves in want because they've never been a believer. They've never been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But also for the believer... For the one who is ultimately prepared, you could say, to meet Jesus Christ, their eternity is in heaven, their residence is in heaven, but yet are they living in a way that they're laying up crowns in heaven? Let's look at that as well as it says here in verses 11 through 13 as we kind of sort of bring this parable home. Afterward, the other virgins came and answered, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, again, speaking of Jesus Christ, I say to you, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Lord, 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 Lord. Speaking of this judgment and reward, we see these sort of thoughts echoed throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking of you know, those in desperation that say, okay, 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 I'll turn my life unto you. Whatever that point of desperation might be, Lord, oh Lord, I I turn my life unto you. I knew you. I went to church every day. I went to church every week. I read my Bible. Um, I had a great, wonderful grandmother. All of those things. We know that those things, if one is diligent in coming to church and, and one is diligent to read their scripture, that can be evidence of salvation, but that will never save a person. Only the one who surrendered their life unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they'll find themselves separated from him in a place called hell, a place of punishment created for Satan and the demons, and where we will find ourselves as those who walk in the same sort of rebellion. Or if we surrender our life into the Lord Jesus Christ, we can experience eternal joy forever in heaven, the very place where he makes his presence fully known. Fully known, 2 Peter 3.13, nevertheless, it says as we, as, as we think about the eternal state, as we will dwell in the new heavens and earth, Romans chapter 8 says that the whole 
creation, the whole creation, is groaning. It's groaning, waiting for the redemption of mankind. The very creation around us has been thrown into turmoil because of the sin of mankind. And even the whole creation waits and groans for the redemption of mankind. It says in First or 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells, in which righteousness dwells. You think about that. What motivation, what greater motivation could there be? There is none for laying up that treasure in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13 says this. Now, if anyone builds upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become clear, that foundation of salvation. He's talking about now that you have been saved, what are you doing with the rest of your life? What are you doing with the rest of your life? Your good works are not for keeping your salvation, holding on to your salvation. Your good works are done out of gratitude for the Lord and also for reward in heaven. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So if it's the gold, silver, precious stones that will be tested by fire and, and the Lord Jesus Christ will see that our life has been uh, dedicated to serving him and his good news and the gospel, or we could have spent our whole life with just the things of this world. Laying up treasure on earth will, it will certainly be destroyed. And, he, and they say, Lord, Lord, and he says to them, I never knew you. It's not a matter of the fact that their poor preparation, their poor works ridded them of their salvation. We know that that's not a teaching of Scripture at all. We know we see the eternal security of our salvation. But what it says, he says, I have never known you. They've never been his. But he says in the end, in verse 13, again, Jesus, as he sort of gives the moral of the story and kind of pulls the story into the drive here, and he kind of pulls it into the harbor, and he brings it home. He says, it's essentially count the cost and follow him. Count the cost of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you have never surrendered your life unto him, he says, don't wait, don't wait, don't wait too late. You never know when I'm going to return. Count the cost, follow him. And for a believer in Jesus Christ, we've been called to count the cost before we ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. Let us remember that each and every day. Are we waking up daily and are we counting the cost of following him? You know, when you think about the future, when we think about the, one, the, the life of, uh, of one that has lived that life to its fullest for the Lord, when we think about the one who has surrendered their life into the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about the one who has ultimate preparation for, 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 for the eternity, which is the life of the believer in Jesus Christ, one who has surrendered their life into the Lord, we know that that is the ultimate preparation for eternity. You know, I, I think, and I want to end this way, of probably the greatest example, one of the greatest examples, if not the greatest example we could think of, at least in American Christendom, of not only one who is prepared for heaven, but also one who lived their life storing up gold and silver and precious stones is the great Billy Graham. He died, he passed away this week, as you well know, and I love this quote here. Take a look at this quote. I love this quote here that uh, was playing throughout a lot of the videos, the remembrance videos, the tribute videos to, to Billy Graham. And I love this video. Talk about a man who is not only prepared because he was a believer in Jesus Christ, but was prepared because his know, he knows his life was well lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. 
Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. He says, don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Folks, that's preparation. Are we prepared to meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, as we, uh, as we come now and we wrap up this sermon and this sermon series, and we think about your com- that you will come again, you will return. Lord, whether it be that we might meet you, whether we pass from this earth before you return and we meet you and because you tell us absent from the body is present with the Lord, or whether you return while we're still alive. Lord, we just pray that we will be prepared to meet you. Ultimately, I pray the greatest step of preparation is the greatest decision that every man and woman must make for themselves, which is are they or are they not going to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, give their life to him, and become a believer, become a Christian. And so I pray that if there are those here today that have never surrendered their life unto the Lord Jesus Christ, would they, would this be the day that they do that very thing, that they surrender their life unto, unto him? But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us that are here that have surrendered our life unto Jesus, are we living our life daily, uh, laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy? Or are we living as those who do not have faith in Jesus? Are we living for the things of this world? Lord, I pray that we would daily surrender that our lives unto you. Trusting you, following you, what you've called us to do, to lay up treasure in heaven and that you will take care of all of life. You will take care of all of those things that can often consume our hearts and our minds. Or would you do that in our midst? Help us to be prepared. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray.